And we begin this morning one of the, um, it's one of, I mean, all scripture is important, but this is like huge this morning. John 14. And I'm dividing chapter 14 into two sermons. Uh, last week we saw Jesus washing the disciples' feet, which would have included Judas, which is incredible to think that, that Jesus knew that he was going to betray him and um, and, and Jesus still washed Judas' feet. Now Jesus is less than 24 hours away from going to the cross. That's where he is right now. And so he takes this opportunity to give what's been called this farewell discourse. He's leaving, saying farewell to everyone, and so he's just giving like last instructions. And I mentioned last week, if you have one of those red-letter Bibles, um, all but three verses in chapter 14 are in red. I don't know if you, look, if, you can, if you have one of those, but Jesus is doing most of the talking. In fact, from chapter 14 to chapter 18, Jesus is doing, the, he's doing most of the talking. This is just him with the disciples, same setting. I mean, they're moving a little bit, um, but it's just him with his disciples giving this, this farewell discourse. So let's look down in our Bibles to John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know me and have seen me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, you are so kind and gracious that you um, invite us to a very exclusive place. So we thank you for Christ, for making a way for us, for giving his life for us, for being the truth. And I pray that you'd open up our eyes. Help us to see. Help us to see who you truly are. Help us to hear from you this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if, if you were going to make a movie out of the Gospel of John, then last week's chapter, chapter 13, would have been what's called an obstacle or crisis 
act in the movie. All movies have these. This is the part of the movie that builds some suspense through some type of conflict. Uh, It's the moment in the movie where you feel like all is lost. It deceives the viewer to think that the movie is going to end badly, so it kind of keeps your attention. And just about every movie has one of these obstacles. It's what makes movies good. It kind of stirs your emotions. In fact, the easiest genre to see this pattern is the romantic comedy. You know, everybody loves a good rom-com, right? Boy meets girl. Girl likes boy. Boy does something dumb. Girl finds out. That's the obstacle. There's tension. There's conflict. Boy does something romantic. Girl falls for it. Conflict resolved. Happily ever after, right? I just ruined every romantic comedy for you, didn't I? Spoiler alert. Up until John 13, everything was going great. Jesus tells his closest friends uh, that he is leaving, that they cannot come. That's what he shared last week. So everything's going great. Um, Jesus continued to gain momentum. The crowds, followers were increasing in number. And and then now here in chapter 13, their last week, enters this drama. So he tells them, like, I'm leaving. You cannot come. Then he drops this bomb um, that one of them is going to betray him. Um, But then there's more. He's not quite done shaking things up in chapter 13. He he turns and tells Peter that that Peter will deny him. You remember, everything's going great for these 12 men. Then all of a sudden, chapter 13 is just like, boom. And uh, I'm sure they're like, what in the world is going on? It's like the band is getting ready to break up. What are we going to do? What, what emotions are you dealing with if you were one of the disciples in that upper room? You could imagine some combination of fear. Like, what are we going to do? Where is he going? Why can't we go? Anxiousness. Like, who's going to betray him? Uh, anger. Maybe Peter could experience anger when Jesus says, you're going to betray me. Not me. I'm not going to betray you. Disappointment, maybe doubt, and this is just to name a few of the emotions. Jesus now, in chapter 14, knowing the heart of the disciples, begins in verse 1 to address their emotions. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. The command found in verse 1 makes complete sense knowing that it follows the events of chapter 13. They received a lot of bad news all at once. So Jesus commands them not to be troubled. When Jesus commands us uh, to tell others about him, you know, like share your faith, great commission, or to give, like those kind of commands make sense. Those are all actions. They're actions that we can attempt to do or not to do. But here, notice that Jesus does not command an action. Instead, he commands an emotion. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. Rejoice in the Lord always. All of these are commands found in the Bible that focus on our emotions. And this is a truth that some of you need to hear today. See, we live in a world that puts a lot of emphasis on mental health, which is a good thing. Many people need help. But sometimes people speak of mental health as some type of like outside force that they cannot control. And this is where I want to push back a bit. If we really take the Bible seriously, that it's more than just this good historical book 
but actually God's word to his people. And we see Jesus in the rest of the New Testament commanding our emotions. Then I think it is wise for us to think that we can have control over these emotions. If not, if our emotions are some outside force working against us, then why would Jesus command us you know, to not be troubled in these situations? You know, why does Jesus say, do not worry, if we cannot help but to be worried? Are these just good ideals for Jesus? Are they just supposed to be understood as good motivational speeches but not something actually attainable? It's like when the coach you know, tells his players, like, okay, guys, let's get out there and let's give 110%. You know, you got this. No one can give 110%, right? It's mathematically impossible. But we all get the idea when the coach speaks like this. The point is you do your best. Give me everything you got. Honestly, I'd be happy if kids gave me 80%. Come on, guys, God, give me 80% today. That's all I'm looking for. I know this might be hard for some of you to hear. I'm not saying that I'm not saying these things to trouble you. I'm saying them so that you can have hope um, when you struggle for your, with your emotions. Uh, there's help here in this passage. In, in John 14, verses 1 through 14, Jesus lists a couple of reasons why our hearts cannot be troubled. You're going to experience trouble in this world. Jesus experienced trouble, right? Last week we saw in two places where it said Jesus was troubled. So you're going to face trouble, but how can you face trouble but not let your emotions rule over you? The first way he shares is found in the second half of verse 1. He says, let your hearts not be troubled. Well, how? How can I not let my heart be troubled? The first way is believe in God, believe also in me. In John's gospel, the word believe is synonymous with the word trust. You can interchange those. In fact, some versions of the Bible We'll do that. Some versions here in this verse will say, trust in God, trust also in me. Notice that Jesus is putting himself as an equal with God. Trust in God, trust also in me. Jesus makes it clear that he thinks of himself as God. You trust in God? Well then, in the same way, trust in me. A common reason why we're often troubled in our spirit is because at least in practice, we do not act as if God is sovereign. So this leads to like anxiety, worry, fear. Anxiety is often created by a negative judgment on something in the future. So how can you rightly discern what is going to happen? You, you can't. You cannot predict the future. Um, so the problem here, it's twofold. One, you don't know the future, so how can you rightly discern what's going to happen? Second, let's say you actually do predict what's going to happen. So what? What if it does happen? Here's my point. I was talking with a guy one time battling um, anxiety. This person was playing the what-if game. We all play the what-if game. You know, what if this happens or what if that happens? You, you've done that, right? You, you play the what if, and you begin to freak yourself out. Um, and I just said to this person, like, so what if those things actually happen? What, you know, let's, let's just think worst case scenario. What then? And this person began to process their situation through a biblical worldview. 
Well, if this happens, I guess I know that God still loves me. Okay? He hasn't left me. Um, if that happens, there's no condemnation for me. Um, if that would happen, there's nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. It's still a pretty good list of things for you that's describing you. About a week later, I was talking to the same person. She said, hey, how's your anxiety? How are you doing? I said, and it's pretty much gone. I'm like, what? Like, just gone? I said, well, what changed? I said, my, my thinking. I, I've stopped saying what if, and now I've begun to say, so what? So what if I lose my job? So what if he or she leaves me? So what if whatever, fill in the blank? So what? There's a lot of things still true if the so what happens. So you cannot control your future, but you can control how you respond to it. The path to peace is found in submitting to the will of God. Um, as the proverb instructs us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. Believe in God. Trust in Jesus that he can handle your situation. Don't trust in yourself. See, this command from Jesus is not just referring to a trust that you do at salvation. That's what you do when you first become a Christian. You trust. People may even said that you want to put your trust in Jesus. And maybe some of you prayed a prayer. See, this is not just that. Jesus is saying, you have believed in me, so now keep believing. Don't stop. Keep trusting. Keep relying on me. So when you are troubled, trust that Jesus can handle the situation. Because we all know that we cannot handle it. So let, let's trust him. Then Jesus gives us the second reason how we cannot be troubled. Verse 2. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? So the second reason he gives, gives us to not be troubled is to know that he has gone to prepare a place for you. So many of you last week got to meet my mom. Um, she's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and um, we're preparing to have her move in with us. So we, spent, um, we brought her down last weekend just to kind of slowly transition her. We all had a great time. She had a great time with the kids and just being here. You guys were extremely kind to her. Um, one of the things that I, I've noticed about her through this Alzheimer's and this season of life with her is that she's not really anxious about it. Um, she's not living in fear of what's coming. Uh, she keeps telling me, even when I was taking her home on last Sunday, she said, yeah, I've had a great life. And, and, and she said, I, I tell Jesus every day that, um, I'm ready to go be with him. So whenever he's ready, I'm ready. Um, you know, I'm just trusting his timing. I'm not going to do anything to hurt myself. But I'm just ready to go. Like this, is, this verse is in her mind. Like she knows that Christ has gone to prepare a place for her. This is not her home. She has a home that he's set up for her. We often talk about security. And that's what, you know, some of you are just anxious because you feel like you don't have security in your life. Whether that's finances, whether that's to buy a house, pay bills. Like, we think finances give us security. Trusting that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you, that is security. 
My mom feels so secure. And so she's, she's ready. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, meaning if you belong to Jesus, there is a specific place in heaven designed for you. That's amazing. I think it's one of those truths we hear and, and, and we've heard so many times, it just doesn't really stir our emotions, our affections. Christ has prepared a place for you. The place that we all deserve was hell and his wrath poured upon us for how we've lived and rebelled. But Jesus says, no, not you. I'm lavishing upon you riches. You're going to come live with me. There's this picture of adoption here. He's adopted you in. Now, the King James Version, I don't know some of you may um, still have King James Version. I read from English Standard Version. But the room that I read, it says room. King James says mansions. And that's why you've kind of heard, like, people talk about their mansion in heaven. This is where it comes from, John 14. Um, but Jesus is not preparing a mansion for us. It, it's, it, it's really like this place that he's gone to prepare for us, this, this room. You know, he didn't have to go to Lowe's or Home Depot to get some building supplies. In fact, the Roman Empire supplied the materials that it took to prepare your room. What did it take? Well, the supply list wasn't too long. All he needed was a few pieces of wood and a few nails. The way Jesus prepares this special place for his disciples is by laying down his life so that their sins can be forgiven. So he went to the cross, was nailed to this tree. This promise from Jesus should give us tremendous comfort from our troubles. You are going to face troubles, but I promise you, they're all going to go away. Usually for me, when I'm worried, anxious, living in fear, have all these emotions stirring up in me, my head is often in this world. I'm just thinking about here. And I think we, we often do that. We, we keep our heads in this world. But it's really healthy for us to think upon heaven. When we think upon heaven, it will help our earthly troubles fade away. It's been said that those who are most heavenly minded are the most earthly good. You, ha you have a good sense of reality, like my mom. Like, even though you know, she, she'd be one that we'd say, oh, you have reason to, to, you know, to worry. She's not worried. Her, her mind is just in heaven all the time. I think that's why Jesus leaves us with some incredible promises like the one found in, in verse 3. J Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus speaks definitively about his return. I will come again and will take you to myself. If you are in Christ, he will not forget about you. You know, one of Olivia and I's greatest fears with seven kids is, like, we, we leave one someplace. Have you ever been left by your parents? Jesus is not going to leave any one of us. He's going to come again, and he will take you. And notice what part of heaven he focuses on here. You see that? 
Where is he going to take you? He says, I will come again and will take you to myself. That's what he's, his focus is on. He does not say, I will take you to your suite. Let me show you to your room. It's, it's not, I'm going to show you the streets of gold. But I will take you to myself. Heaven is not great because there's no sickness, no death, no pain. It's not great because the streets will be made of gold and every tear will be wiped away. All those things are wonderfully true, right? But heaven is great simply because Jesus is there. He's taking you to the greatest part of heaven. When you think of heaven, if Jesus is not in your mind, then you don't have a right understanding of heaven. Jesus finishes this first part of this section with this somewhat cryptic statement. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then in verse 5, Thomas asked the question that the other disciples all probably had on their mind as well. Verse 5, Lord, we, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? That's a fair question. Just a few minutes earlier in this conversation, this is where we were last week, so, but it wasn't a whole week since Jesus was talking to his disciples. This was all one conversation. Last week in chapter 13, Jesus told the disciples, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. So now he's saying, and you know the way to where I'm going. So this leads Thomas to ask the question, how can we know the way? But Thomas actually did know the way. In fact, the way was standing right in front of him. Thomas knows the way because he knows the person. Jesus says in, the, in, in verse 6, I am the way. Thomas, it's me. You want to know the way? Then get to know me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells us the way to God is not through some method like being good or moral, generous or kind, but salvation is through faith in Christ. We live in a strange day. We really do. I, I, every generation probably says that. But we live in a world right now where every opinion is supposed to be valued with the same respect. You know, even if you say something really stupid, we're supposed to look at you and like, you know, that, I really appreciate what your, you know, your, your, your view here. And you're just like biting your tongue like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But you can't say that. We're, we're supposed to be tolerant of different worldviews. But what often happens is in this like postmodern way of thinking is that any universal claim of truth, that's met with intolerance. It's weird how like tolerance only works a certain way. It only goes so far. And that's what we're seeing in our culture today. Christians are told to be tolerant of other beliefs, but the moment a Christian makes some absolute claim about heaven and hell, about the exclusivity of Christ, which is what Jesus has just done here, or about abortion or about LGBT, then Christians are labeled as being intolerant. A postmodern culture does not understand absolute truth. Truth is narrow. But today you hear phrases like, well, that might be true for you, 
but not necessarily true for me. Or you do your truth. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is a very exclusive statement. Disciples, they, they, they're not just believe, verse 6, like they, they live this out. They, they believe verse 6 to be not just like a truth, but the truth. In Acts chapter 4, so Christ has already ascended back to heaven. The church is growing. Peter's preaching. He's facing persecution. Chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says this. This is to like a hostile crowd. Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's very exclusive. Does that language sound familiar? Peter is now spreading the same exclusive language that he heard from Jesus. This doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ, it fuels missions. This is why we go. If Jesus is the only way to God, then Christians should be motivated to tell as many people about Jesus because Jesus is their only hope. If this is true, either this is true or Christ is lying or the Bible can't be trusted. About 10 years ago, there's this um, still a famous magician. He's still an atheist, to my knowledge. Penn, you guys see he's got like a new show on cable TV. Penn and Teller. Um, Penn um, shared about a man who gave him a Bible. And this is always just, it's just kind of stayed with me. Penn said this, you know, again, he's an atheist. Um, this was after one of his shows. He said that he doesn't respect people who don't proselytize, meaning share their faith. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to, to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just, you know, they think, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. How much, this is Penn, this is this atheist, he's saying, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize, not to share your faith. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So this is an atheist talking about how he doesn't understand how people can be Christians and just not be motivated or led to tell people about Jesus if he is the only way. If we believe that Jesus is the only way to God, then it's not right for us to be quiet. It's actually really cool. I mean, think about if you had a, the cure for cancer. I mean, all of us have been impacted by cancer in some way. Someone you know has, has died or is dying right now from cancer, and you have this cure. You see all these people dying, and you don't share the cure. You don't give them what you have because you're afraid that if you offer it, they might go, they might make fun of you. Ah, yeah, you have the cure. That's real funny. 
or they might call you crazy or intolerant. That is what many of us are doing with the gospel. You have the remedy to the brokenness in this world, to, the, to all the suffering and the pain. You have the answer to eternal life. And many of you are too afraid that people will reject that message so you just don't say anything to them. I mean, isn't that cruel? Jesus makes this exclusive statement about himself. He says he is the way, not a way. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Billions of people in the world. And what Jesus is essentially saying to all of them is, not one of you is getting in to the greatest place ever unless you talk to me first. That's what Jesus is saying. So in one sense, it's extremely exclusive. He's the only way. In another sense, Jesus is extremely inclusive because over and over again, all throughout this gospel and the New Testament, he says, anyone who comes, come. And so this makes Jesus really narrow-minded towards other religions. I'm guessing most people that you interact with, including some who would say that they're followers of Christ, are not comfortable, and it might be even you right now, you're not comfortable with saying that Jesus is the only way. They would say that Jesus is a way, but we shouldn't exclude others who are devoted to their faith. You know, these people would, would say that they do believe that God is, you know, that there's one God, but that we're all worshiping the same God, and maybe we're just describing him in different ways. You know, like, like Christians will say, you know, God's the Trinity. Muslims would describe God as Allah. Hindus describe, you know, a plurality, you know, many, 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 many gods. It's like the story of the four blind men trying to describe an elephant. You, you've probably heard this before. You know, the first blind man, he's led to an elephant and, and, and asked, what, what, does he, what does he feel? You know, what is an elephant? And he reaches out and he grabs a leg. He's like, well, let's see. Elephant, I think an elephant is it's, it's, it's like a tree. It's large and round. Okay? Second blind man is led up to the elephant. Tell, okay, tell us what you think what an elephant is. And he, he grabs the tail. Oh, I think the elephant is it's like a rope. It's small and kind of coarse. Third blind man's led to the elephant. He reaches out and grabs the ear. Okay, what, what's the elephant to you? Well, uh, elephant to me, it's like, it's like a fan. It's flat. It's thin. Fourth blind man's led to the elephant, and he reaches out and grabs the trunk. Okay, why don't you describe the elephant to us? I think elephants, it's like a snake. It's, it's long. It's curvy, kind of wiggly. It moves. And this is how a lot of people view God. Each blind man represents a different religion. Each religion is trying to describe God, but each religion, because of its own blindness, can only describe the part of God they're holding on to. In, in some sense, each blind man was correct, right? But the crucial difference between all major religions and Christianity is Christianity doesn't have a blind man trying to describe God. Look, Look at verse 7. We, we see this in the very next verse. Verse 7, Jesus says, If you have known me, 
you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. See, this is the difference between Jesus and the four blind men. Jesus could tell us that the elephant is not a tree, it's not a rope or a fan or a snake, but that this was an elephant. Jesus isn't blind. He has seen the Father. So who better to trust to describe what the Father is like than the Son? We should trust Jesus with what he's saying over the blind men, these other religions. Verse 7 is of great importance. He says, if you have known me, you have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, if someone who says they worship God does not respond to Jesus in worship, then whoever they claim to worship is not the God of the Bible. If you believe in God, you will believe in Jesus. If you reject Jesus, then you cannot really be believing in God. I, I, you know, as these disciples are asking questions, I find a lot of encouragement here. Jesus, he's not speaking these parables like he has in previous chapters. He, he's just speaking clearly. And yet, the disciples are still a bit confused. So for me, if, if they're confused, there's a great chance that you and I are still going to be confused. So in verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He, he's kind of like the, you know, the if-then. You know, Lord, if you do this, then I'll, then, I'll, then I'll follow you, or I'll trust you then. So that's kind of Philip. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And when Jesus is like, have you been listening to what I just said? He's, he says to him in verse 9, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, you ready, Philip, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Philip asked to be shown the Father, and Jesus replies, Don't you know me? In other words, if you know Jesus, then you know God. Jesus makes this claim as clear as it can be. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's a bold statement. If someone wants to see God, we need to show them Jesus. Then Jesus makes this outlandish claim in verse 12. He says, truly, truly, meaning, listen up. What I'm getting ready to say is something really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What? Really? And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. What in the world? Jesus says that, Whoever believes in him, greater works will they do. Greater works than Jesus? How is that possible? I mean, let's just take a moment and reflect back through this gospel. So you know, we only have a day left in this gospel, so we've seen a lot. He instantly turned water um, into aged wine. Anyone done that one? 
He healed the official's son without being in the same location. Later, he healed the paralytic who was lame. You know, he was by the pool for almost four decades. Told him, get up, take your mat and walk. Dude just gets up and walks. Anyone? You done that one? Fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. My wife does that one often. He walked on water. He raised Lazarus to life after he was dead for four days. These are all great works. And we haven't even gotten to the greatest work of him defeating sin and death on the cross, raising, you know, he has his own resurrection. But here Jesus says that you will do greater things. So what in the world does he mean here? Well, the, the last phrase in verse 12 is, is the key part of this. Because I am going to the Father. So, so Jesus is returning to his Father. He's about to send his Holy Spirit. Next week, he, he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit very clearly, more so than he has so far. And so he's preparing them like, to hear about the Holy Spirit. So he, he's returning, sending the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends to heaven, the very last thing he tells them, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, talking to these same men, so that's, what the, that's who the you is, you disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So that's Acts chapter 2. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, this is something Jesus never did. So it seems like this is these greater works. The greater works here that Jesus is talking about is to evangelize the world, that the whole world would know that we would fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus never preached outside the northern, southern kingdom of Israel. In his lifetime, um, Europe never heard the gospel. Uh, Jesus never preached the gospel to the masses in Rome. But his disciples... They have spread the gospel all around the globe. Started out with a few guys, now has millions and millions of followers. Greater things. So knowing that the Great Commission was this challenging task, and this is, you know, we're still trying to fulfill the Great Commission, Jesus leaves his disciples with a promise in the next two verses that has often been abused by many Christian preachers and teachers. I think some, um, not out of ill intent, uh, some have, I think for their own, own purposes, abused this verse. Verse 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What an awesome verse. Name it and claim it, right? Here's your chance. You want that new car? In Jesus' name. Good grades without studying? You don't need to. Just ask. Just believe it. For your spouse to never complain about you ever again? Just ask. See, the abuse of this verse comes from a misunderstanding of what in my name means. In my name is the key to understanding this promise. 
for something to be asked in someone's name, um, it, it, it's, it's not just like some special phrase we tag onto a prayer. You know, most of us, we end our prayer with saying, in Jesus' name or in his name. Uh, that, that's not like some kind of like, if you get the magical spell right, then this works. In his name, what, what it means is, is to do it according to that person's will, as like the representative of their wishes. You are representing their character. For example, if a lawyer represents you in court or in another country, they're meant to do things in your name. That means they are meant to do what you want. They're representing you. So likewise, to ask something in Jesus' name means to ask for things that Jesus wants to happen that reflects Jesus' desires and purposes. That's what it means to ask in his name. One author writes, No prayer is effective if it is not biblically informed and shaped according to Jesus' will. It does not honor him to pray for what we want, but which he has never given any impression of desiring, and then quote his name in support of our own selfish ends. Jesus wants us to do greater works, so he is giving us unlimited resources to further his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Like, I, I truly believe this verse. I, I truly believe that if you need something to further his kingdom, then I really believe he will give you those things. But if you are asking for things to further your kingdom, Jesus is under no obligation to answer those prayers. I mean, you guys have seen those kind of prayers being answered. I remember in 2020, summer of 2020, we, we had no building, we had no money, and then this building came up for sale, and um, it, we, we needed, uh, I think, like $42,000 in like a month. We're like, that's, that's great. <laughs> and then we, we were going through Nehemiah at the time. We were encouraged by, you know, Nehemiah saw this big ask being answered. And so we're like, let's just, let's just trust God. If, if this building will help us further his kingdom, then he will give it to us. And man, we got like $50,000 within 20-some days. It was amazing. Uh, and, and so I just really, I've just seen the Lord work. If you, if, if you really need this thing to further his kingdom, he will give it to you. So maybe, some of you, you're maybe introverted, shy, Ask God to help you. Maybe you don't have the boldness to share the gospel. Ask God to help you. He, he will give you that boldness because that's going to help further his kingdom. Now, if you're asking for boldness because you want to make much of you, then he's not gonna, he may not grant that. But whatever you ask, if it's to help further his kingdom, I mean, think of it. I, I heard um, one pastor talk about it like, like this from like a military perspective. You know, we're at a spiritual battle. And in a war, you're going you're to make sure your troops have everything they need to fulfill that mission. So if one of your soldiers calls back and says, hey, we, we, need, more, we need more food, we need more ammunition, you go, you make sure they have what they need to further, because that's your, you're sending them out to complete your mission. That's what God has done with us. We're on mission. And God is sending you out. Whatever you need as faithful soldiers, he will give you what you need. Jesus says you will do greater works. 
He has given you the resources to reach all nations. The question for you this morning is, will you be faithful to share the remedy? Let's pray as the band comes back up. Father, I pray that we would be, that we would be compelled to share this exclusive message with the dying world around us, that we wouldn't hold on to the remedy, but we'd be willing to share it with anyone who's willing to listen. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, that we would not be too stubborn to ask for big prayers, that we would, that we would pray big things. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't pray those things for our own selfish gain. I pray that we would have our mind in heaven, that we would be heavenly minded so that we can be earthly good. So Lord, may we not be asking for things to expand our kingdom, but may we ask big, big things to further yours. So give us boldness this week. Help us to, to, see, uh, to see others as, as sufferers, as sinners who are hurting. Help us to be compassionate upon them. Even though they may think a different way, maybe they may be um, against you, hostile. Lord, may we be faithful. Uh, may we be faithful to share your message. So give us boldness. We're praying that now. We're just asking and trusting in you, these promises. So give us boldness this week, Lord, so that we can be... Uh, uh, faithful to this, that we can see greater works being done. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.